probably, I, th I think I say this every time, but I'm going to keep saying it every time because it's true, but it is always such a blessing to be here with you. Um, it's always an encouragement to our hearts, so thank you for having us back. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Psalm 107. And I don't know about you, but every year I get caught off guard by Thanksgiving. With the busyness of work and the approaching holidays, the week of Thanksgiving all, almost always sneaks up on me. And as a result, most years I make a somewhat genuine but too late effort to focus on being more thankful. You know, I'll read various psalms, passages, or poems about thankfulness in an attempt to kind of stoke thankfulness in my heart. And I think for a lot of us, our growth as believers follows a similar pattern, right? We hear a sermon, read an article, or read a passage of scripture, and we resolve to grow in a particular area. And our attempts are often genuine, but they're also short-lived. Just like the Friday after Thanksgiving, we wake up tired, bloated, and consumed by the everyday stresses of life and quickly forget our resolve to be more thankful or more joyful, more patient or more loving. And instead, we're consumed by the cares of everyday life. So how do we break that cycle? How do we grow even when we have so many good, God-given responsibilities to take care of? What is the key to lasting thankfulness and joy? Well, Psalm 107 gives us a glimpse and a pattern uh, that, that we can follow to grow in our thankfulness and joy in a way that lasts longer than just the Friday after Thanksgiving. And I'll warn you, if you're hoping for a quick, easy fix, you won't really find that here in this passage. This isn't like those workout infomercials that say five minutes a day for two weeks will make you look like a Greek god. I'm sorry, that's just, it just doesn't work. Instead, Psalm 107 gives us a pattern that we can follow that takes time and intention. This passage shows us that thanksgiving and joy are rooted and formed in habits of our minds and in expressions of thanksgiving that are responsive to God's grace. So we're going to read all 43 verses here. I think it's worth it to read through it, and then we'll walk through this psalm together. Beginning in verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to, to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and, he, and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways and, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. 
He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste, because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So from this psalm, we see that careful consideration of God's loving acts towards his people produces a heart of thanksgiving. And I really kind of want to draw your attention to three key aspects of this psalm, and I encourage you to look for this as we walk through it together. The first is careful consideration. You may have noticed that the author concludes this psalm by encouraging the reader to uh, consider God's mercy that is described in the psalm. You would think that he would conclude just how he started, namely by calling his audience to give praise to God and express their gratitude for his deliverance. And he certainly does that throughout this psalm. But instead, the psalmist concludes this psalm by calling us to consider, to understand, to discern the love of God. The psalmist instructs the reader to observe and keep careful watch for instances of God's mercy and love in their lives. Instead of giving us a list of do's and don'ts, the author concludes by saying, think about this. Take time to consider what God has done and consider the way his actions reveal his character. So as we walk through this psalm, consider the love of God that is revealed to us. As the psalmist recounts God's deliverance, think about the heart of God that drives his mercy towards his people. The second key aspect of the psalm is emphasized by the psalmist. Um, drawing our attention to specific instances of God's deliverance or his loving acts towards his people. The psalmist doesn't merely tell his readers to consider abstract characteristics of God divorced from reality, like think about his grace, think about his love, think about his mercy. Instead, the psalmist draws their attention first to particular instances or moments where the people experienced his mercy or saw his mercy in their lives. The psalmist points our, the reader to the heart of God that drives his action and shows the reader that our thankfulness should not be primarily rooted in his good gifts. We, we can be thankful for those things, but 
our, our thankfulness is rooted in his character. Our circumstances may change, but the character of God is unchanging. And the last key aspect of this psalm is emphasized by the psalmist's call for our response in a heart of thanksgiving. A heart of thanksgiving, a heart that is truly thankful, is rooted in God's character. It is a result of meditation on God's act of, acts of love that reveal that character. And as we read this, our hearts should be humbled and rejoice as we consider God's mercy and the love that he pours out on us undeserving sinners. Thankfulness that is rooted in the unwavering love of God causes us to rejoice even when our circumstances are difficult. So again, this psalm uh, shows us that careful consideration of God's loving acts towards his people produces a heart of thanksgiving. So let's walk through this. In verses 1 through 3, the psalmist begins with a call to worship, a call to thanksgiving for the goodness and steadfast love of God. And specifically, the psalmist brings attention to God's redemption of his people by gathering them in from the nations. But how is it that we begin this psalm finding Israel gathered from among the nations? How did they get, become scattered in the first place? Well, Psalms 105 through 107 really recount the history of Israel, and the previous two psalms set the stage for Psalm 107. In Psalm 105, the author recounts how God chose Israel to be his special and holy people. It describes how God chose Abraham when Abraham was merely a sojourner in a foreign land, wandering from nation to nation. And the author recounts God's covenant to Abraham that was passed down and preserved through Isaac and Jacob. This psalm recounts some of the various circumstances and trials that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph endured. But this psalm is more than just a history lesson. The psalm really focuses on God's sovereign protection and preservation of his chosen people that is rooted in his kindness and goodness to them. The psalmist recounts God's delivering um, Abraham from various kings, providing for Jacob uh, when there was a famine in the land, and how God blessed his people even as they re resided in Egypt. Psalm 105 also recounts how God used Moses to, to deliver his people from Egypt, again focusing on God's protection and preservation of his people. And the psalm concludes by drawing the reader's attention to God's deliverance of his people because of the promise he made to Abraham. The psalm ends with a call to praise to God for his covenant faithfulness to his people and for the, for the specific ways he blessed his people. So Psalm 105 ends with Israel being blessed in the promised land. And you might expect Psalm 106 to then recount the stories of David and Solomon and other faithful people and the ways they served the Lord and how God blessed the nation of Israel. And while Psalm 106 again recounts God's faithfulness to his people, Psalm 106 really highlights God, uh, the people's unfaithfulness to God. It, it builds this very strong contrast between us as God's people and God and his faithfulness. And it again describes how God graciously delivers his people time and time again. But at the same time, the psalmist reminds the reader of how quickly Israel turned from God, forgetting him and his grace and his deliverance. And even though Israel disobeyed God, didn't follow his commands and turned to other gods, God delivers them time and again, but eventually he does bring judgment. He brings in other nations to conquer Israel and, to and take them into captivity. But even in the midst of their judgment, God listens to their cry for help. 
Even when they're captives in another nation, God is gracious to them and shows favor to them. And in Psalm 106, it ends with a cry for deliverance in verse 47. It says, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. And then Psalm 107 picks off right where they left off. And it says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the langs. So you see a prayer for deliverance, a prayer for gathering in from among the nations, and God has delivered. He has gathered them in. And we see this contrast. We see an undeserving people crying for mercy, and we see a a holy God being merciful to his people. Psalm 106 paints a very clear picture of the wickedness of God's people and shows how undeserving they were. But even in their undeserving sin, God showed mercy and grace. God hears their cry for deliverance, and he delivers them. And the first three verses of Psalm 107 call the reader to give thanks to God for his love and mercy. And the next four sections of the psalm kind of follow a similar pattern. First, the author describes the circumstances of a particular group of people. These were likely real circumstances that uh, God's people encountered in their captivity or or as they came back to uh, the land that he had promised. But as we'll see as we walk through this, the author also draws uh, spiritual parallels to their physical condition. And second, the author describes their prayer to the Lord for deliverance, which is always and immediately followed by God's specific deliverance for them. And again, while this describes physical deliverance, the author also draws attention to the spiritual deliverance that they experienced. And last, God's merciful deliverance results in praise and thanksgiving offered by those who have been delivered. So let's walk through these sections. First, in verses 4 through 9, we see those who wandered in the wilderness. And in this first section, the author recounts those who wandered and, and were seeking a home to live in. This could have been those taken captive in other nations. It could have been those um, making their journey home or those left in Israel in a destroyed nation who no longer had a city to dwell in. They were seeking a city but could not find one. A city provided community and security, a home. It provided a place to make money and to buy food and, and all those things that we enjoy. But notice here, they were wandering so long that they were now on the brink of death. And this isn't just describing a group of people on a long road trip that are getting hungry or hangry and and grumpy. This is a group of people that have looked for something and have not found it and are in danger of dying. This, This section really well describes a lost and restless soul, a soul that is unsatisfied, seeking anything and everything to satisfy it. Do you remember what that's like for your soul to be starving and thirsty? Do you remember seeking satisfaction in anything and everything, something that would just satisfy you? Maybe you're in that season now. Or maybe you have yet to turn to God for deliverance. But this section highlights the destruction that happens to our souls when we seek satisfaction apart from God. We just sang about it in the second song. It leaves our souls empty and starving to be filled and threatens to destroy us completely. And notice here, they seek everything and anything to satisfy, and when nothing satisfies, they turn to God and they cry out for deliverance. When they have nowhere else to turn, they turn to God. 
in the time they spent looking elsewhere, they almost died in their wandering. But eventually, they cry out to God. And they only needed to cry out to God, and he delivered them. These people didn't work for the bread and water that God provided. They didn't somehow uh, work their way back and into his favor. All they did was cry out to God. It made me think of uh, the line in Come Ye Sinners that says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And they felt their need of God. Spurgeon puts it this way, The cry must have been very feeble, for they were faint, and their faith was as weak as their cry, but yet they were heard, and heard at once. A little delay would have been their death, but there was none, for the Lord was ready to save. The Lord delights to come in when no one else can be of the slightest avail. So God is ready and willing to help these people. And notice here, God meets not only their physical needs, but also their spiritual needs. In verse 7 it says, He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. God cares about the person, the body, the the human body that we have. He cares about their uh, particular circumstances. But he does more than that. In verse 9 it says, He satisfies the longing soul, the hungry soul he fills with good things. And I couldn't help but think of a few other places in Scripture where we see God inviting us to find our satisfaction in Him, even though we have nothing to give to Him. Jordan just read it in our background Scripture, but I'll read it again. In Psalm, or Isaiah 55, God says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and dis- delight yourselves in rich food. Here God invites his people to be satisfied in him. They have nothing to offer God. They have nothing to bring, nothing to buy their food and their sustenance with, but God promises to fill them. And again, this reminds me, and uh, Jordan already read part of this, but in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus feeds these people, gives them physical bread. And afterwards, they, they want more of the bread. They want, to, they want free food. Who doesn't want free food? But Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He promises satisfaction. He promises that they will be completely satisfied. And in another uh, story in John, we see Jesus interacting with a woman at the well. This woman at the well was a, a unsatisfied, sexually broken woman, but, but Christ goes to her to meet her needs. And he says uh, to the woman in John 4, everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of the, the well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And then Christ goes on to to describe to her her own seeking for satisfaction and how none of it has left her satisfied. But then he shows her life and the way of life and she finds true satisfaction and goes and tells others of the satisfaction she has found. And in each of these passages, we see that God satisfies abundantly. He doesn't satisfy meagerly. He doesn't just give them a snack. He doesn't just give them a little bit. God gives them abundantly. He says, come be filled. Have an overabundance of good things. 
He doesn't hand out meagerly. And look at what the result is. It says, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Why? For, there's a for here, for he satisfies the longing soul. Their, their worship is rooted in what God has done for them. It's also rooted in the character of God. Notice the author's focus on the steadfast love of God. It was God who sent his people into captivity, but it was also that same God who heard their cries for mercy and delivered them. Spurgeon says this, The spiritual sense of their deliverance is, however, the more rich in instruction. The Lord sets us longing and then completely satisfies us. The longing that leads us into solitude, separation, thirst, faintness, and self-despair, and all these conduct us to prayer, faith, divine guidance, satisfying of the soul's thirst and rest. The good hand of the Lord is to be seen in the whole process and in the divine result. So yes, God does bring hard things. God does leave us unsatisfied when we pursue things outside of him. But it's that same God who, who promises and will satisfy us when we turn to him. The next section in verses 10 through 16 that the author highlights are those who are in chains, those who are in prison. And this section focuses on those who were likely imprisoned in their captivity. They're chained, they're in prisons, they're left for dead. And notice in this section, the author explicitly highlights why they are in their chains. It says, for they had rebelled against the word of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. They are held captive for their rebellion. Their imprisonment is their fault. There's no one else to blame here. And the, the spiritual parallel here is, is fairly clear. When we walk in rebellion to God's ways, we become captive to sin. You might remember in the garden, the original temptation of man, Satan promises freedom outside of God's law. But what does that temptation actually bring? It brings enslavement to our sin. It brings captivity to death. The, the illusion is that God's law is somehow a burden when really when we indulge in sin, it becomes our captor. And notice the language here. These people indulge in their sin over and over in an attempt to experience freedom and instead of freedom, they become slaves to their sin. Instead of freedom, they experience affliction, death, and hard labor. Again, we see these people hit rock bottom. There's nowhere else to turn, and there was none to help them. So in their affliction and imprisonment, they cry out to God for help. We often do the same. We'll look everywhere else for help. We'll try to do it on our own until we finally realize we can't, and we meet the end of ourselves, and we cry to God. But just like before, the moment they cried out to God, God is quick and ready to deliver them. And I hope you see the contrast here. This, this section really draws attention to the fact that of the deserved state of these chains. We rebelled. We chose to spurn the life-giving words of God. And as a result, we experience our consequences of our sin. But God, in his mercy, is ready and willing to deliver us when we cry out to him. And how does he deliver us? He delivers us completely. He breaks our chains. He sets us free from the slavery to sin through the death and resurrection of Christ. We won't look at it now, but Romans 6 makes clear that Christ has freed us from our slavery to sin and now we are made alive in Christ, in him. 
And notice verse 14, it says, He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Again, God saves completely. Those who were left for dead in dark prisons of sin, he has brought to life. He shatters our chains and set us, sets us free. And the result, again, is joy and thankfulness to the Lord. And again, we see this, this kind of causal phrase here in verse 16, the four. Their, their resulting praise is rooted in what God has done, which reveals his extraordinary love and mercy. In verses 17 through 22, then, we see a group of people who suffer sickness, some sort of physical affliction. And again, this focuses on those who suffer um, as a result of their sin, as a result of their pursuit of sin. And again, sin promises enjoyment and freedom, but instead of enjoyment and freedom, sin delivers affliction and suffering. And sometimes there are real physical consequences to our time, or to our sin, but every time our souls uh, will suffer from the sin that we pursue. They indulge in their sin, and because of it, nothing sounds good anymore. They've lost their appetite for anything and everything. That's what sin does to our souls. The sunset that once delighted our hearts, the good food that made our hearts rejoice, everything loses its color and its taste and enjoyment when we pursue sin. And notice the sin almost destroys them. They're at the gates of death. But before they die, they cry out to the Lord again, and he delivers them. And notice how God delivers him here. He sends his word. And while sin promises freedom, but delivers enslavement and destruction, God's word gives life and true freedom. While we are on the brink of death, God brings us to life by his word. Think of Ephesians 2, uh, verse 5, that says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And the resulting praise again, it says, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the, ch- uh, to the children of man. But there's an interesting shift here. Instead of a for or a causal phrase after, there's an end. And what does he say? He says, And let them offer sacrifices of, the, of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. I was just listening to, through a lecture on, on the sacrificial system. I know it's a real interesting thing to listen through a lecture on, but it was really good. And one of the things that I learned is that there's uh, different types of offerings in the Old Testament. And there's uh, something called a thanksgiving offering that is a type of peace offering. And there were specific sacrifices that could be brought to God um, out of thanksgiving for what God has done, typically out of a particular answer to a particular prayer. Now, most offerings were either completely consumed or a portion was reserved for the priest. But for these sacrifices of thanksgiving, the worshiper was given a portion of the meat back, and they were commanded to prepare a feast and, and to celebrate God's deliverance. So you see what the author is doing. He isn't just telling them to go uh, thank God in their private prayer. He's telling them, grab the meat, grab your friends, and tell them what God has done. Hold a feast. Speak of what God has done in your life. This isn't just some, something that you can enjoy on your own. This is meant to be expressed in community. And I challenge you, maybe try this sometime. Maybe not the animal sacrifice part. I might land you in prison. But gather friends and family. 
to celebrate a specific instance where God graciously answered your prayer. And in verses 23 through uh, 32, we see those who are caught in the storm. And this section pictures those who are on the sea, likely traveling back to Israel. And it brings to mind stories in the Bible like, the, like Jonah or the disciples. And notice the language here. It is God who commanded and raised the storm. This physical predicament is brought by the hand of God. And these seagoers are in grave danger and are on the brink of death. And I think this parallels the, the general suffering we experience in this world, the suffering that God sovereignly brings into our life, the uncontrollable circumstances of our life that bring har- hardship. But like Job, we are to see these circumstances as sovereignly brought by his hand. And sometimes our suffering in this life threatens to shipwreck our faith. Sometimes we, like Peter, see the waves instead of God. But our suffering, um, our suffering often looks like it is too much for us. And that's kind of the point. It's the point of it is to drive us to God. And that's exactly what happens here. God brings these difficult things into their lives and they cry out to God for help and deliverance. And the same God who brought the storm is the same God who calms the storm. And this, again, makes me think of the disciples in Matthew 8. As they cross uh, the sea, it says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? And this right here is the, exam- the answer to their question. It is God. It is God who, who can calm the sea. It is God who brings the waves, and it is uh, he who can calm it as well. And notice again, at the end of this section, there's a call for corporate worship, not just private worship. There's a call for those who have been delivered from their physical circumstances to tell God's people of his loving and merciful care. It says, let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. As God's people gather there to tell each other of what God is doing in their lives to show his mercy and love. So in these four sections, we see God time and time again lovingly and mercifully delivering his people from various circumstances. These sections really highlight the undeserved nature of God's deliverance. We have sinned. We have rebelled. We have ran from God. Yet God lovingly delivers his people when they cry out to him. And we also see that God is not far off. He's intimately involved in each of these situations. Sometimes he's the one, well, all, he's sovereign. So all the time, he is the one bringing these situations into our lives. But he's also the one who delivers us from them or through them. And that brings us to this last section. This section reads a lot like wisdom literature. It, it's not setting hard and fast rules for the way that God always works, but general, general tendencies of the way that God works in his world. This section is really a poetic way of saying that God has orchestrated all of these four situations previously described. When man rebelled, God brought hard things. 
But when man cried out to God, God was quick and ready to deliver him and bless them. The hard things that God brings into our lives are meant to draw us to himself and point us to him. It is actually God's mercy and love that allows us to suffer hard things that show us our need of him. Because those hard things drive us right back to him. So what is this, the conclusion of this entire psalm? It's verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So we have just flown through a very large section of scripture. I would encourage you to consider what is here in this psalm. But again, the application is simple. Consider the steadfast love of God. And this takes time and intention. This, this doesn't just happen. If you just expect thankfulness to happen, it won't. If you just expect growth to happen, it won't. This takes uh, stilling everything, quieting the emails on your phone, quieting the texts on your phone, and just having time to think about God's mercy and grace, to reflect on the day, to reflect on the year, and to think about how God has lovingly and mercifully met your needs. And this could be big moments. This could be mountaintop moments where God really met you in a, a specific moment, or it could just be a little moment in a day that God met you in your need. But it takes time to see those things. And sometimes we're too busy to see his mercy. And what is that meditation to produce in our lives? Well, thankfulness for his character, thankfulness for his deliverance. And it produces a deepening trust in God's faithfulness to hear us and to deliver us. You see, none of these groups deserved God's mercy, and yet God was so willing and able to rescue them. And that is something we can consider. We are in the same boat as these people. You see, when Israel came into the land, there were times when God commanded Israel to stack these large stacks of stones called Ebenezer's that they could go back and as they walked through the land, they would, their kids would see a large pile of stones and they would ask, Dad, why, why is that stone there? Why is that pile of rocks there? They were to tell their, their kids what God has done. And I think we should do the same thing. Maybe again, maybe you don't put giant rock stacks in your front lawn, but creative ways to remember God's mercy in your life. And like Israel, we are exiles in a foreign land. We who are, were once not a people are now God's people who live under his sovereign care for our good. And like the Israelites were commanded to slow down and stop and remember what God has done, we too need to slow down and stop and remember what God is doing in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can gather together um, to hear from your word. We thank you for this psalm that recounts your grace and mercy um, that you have orchestrated in the lives of your people. God, I pray that you would make us a thankful and joyful people as we slow down to consider your mercy and love that you lavish on us, Lord. I pray that you would um, bring this to mind that we would slow down out of our busy lives, taking just moments in our day to pray and thank you for what you've done. And we thank you for this time. Thank you for just your mercy in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.